So good evening, everybody. Welcome to Thursday night snooze fest. We were just playing some tennis across the street, and um, apparently, when it gets dark, it's really hard to play tennis. You can't react till it's like right in front. Yeah. Like trying to, but then you. You hear the person hit the ball, and you kind of see something, but then it just kind of whoosh, whizzes past you. You know, you can play with a light bar. We did not know that. <laughs> it was more you important. go over to the high school, there's sports with lights. Oh. Oh, wow. Okay, next week. Yeah, So, for class today, um, yeah, I want to begin by asking if there's anything that any of you specifically would like to hear about, any themes, whether meditational themes or life themes anything that I could tie into a talk so whatever it is that you personally are looking at or working on or thinking about So, what's your, do you have a specific question within all of that? Or is that more of just a share? I would happily give a talk about the meditation as a practice of relaxation and how that leads to insights. How's that for everybody? Sounds like a thesis. Okay, my thesis, yeah. Um, okay, talk has begun. So, the Buddha actually said that there are these two types of meditation. And he said there's samatha meditation and vipassana meditation. And he just, for understanding purposes, broke them up into two things. And he said samatha meditation, this is the meditation that involves relaxing, calming down, stilling the mind. And then vipassana meditation, this is the meditation of discernment, of understanding things, getting insights, breaking things up. And he said, so some people, they first practice samatha meditation, and then when their mind gets really strong, really focused, really grounded, really present, 
Then they turn that to objects, turn that to reflections, looking at the body, looking at their feelings, their thoughts, their world, kind of starting to open up their experience and understand it on a deeper way. And he said, but some people first they practice Vipassana and then they go into the Samantha practice. And he said, and then there's also some people, and he said it's like two climbers who are climbing a mountain and they're tied to each other and they're kind of helping each other up. So you build up one a little bit, then you build up the next one a little bit, then you build the next one, and they kind of support each other as they climb, right? I, from my practice, I feel more and more that, that he spoke this way in more of a, you know, to take something and to split it up allows you to understand it and its kind of constituent parts better, but it doesn't mean that it's actually a separate thing. Um, you know, I could talk about my singing bowl here, and I could talk about the metal of the bowl, or I can talk about the sound of the bowl, or I can talk about the coldness of the bowl, or the density of it, the temperature, right, the cold, um, the style. So there's many different ways that I can talk about this object, and they're all equally kind of a part of this object. They all kind of make it up, right? And when I've gotten really deep into practicing samatha or samadhi, so insight practice, so um, the, the stillness practices, I noticed that a lot of insights just started coming up by themselves, that it wasn't like I had to kind of stop this one thing called samatha practice and then start this thing called vipassana practice. It was for me very much that the more that I started stilling and calming my mind to becoming more present, the more that I just started seeing more clearly what are the mechanics of the mind, how does the mind work, right? What does the mind, what does a, a moving mind mean? What does a calm mind mean? What does a reactive mind mean? What, am I, what does it mean to project things on situations or on people? It really started to, so actually we were playing tennis and Shannon said to me, you know, oh, you should do a, you should try to compare playing tennis at night to meditation, you know? And I thought about what that could mean, but I think this actually is exactly what it means. It's that, you know, the same way that when we were playing tennis at night, you can't really see the ball, it's hard to hit it, you don't really know what's going on, it's just kind of like whooshing by you and you're just a mess. But if there was light, if you could suddenly see, if you had clarity, then you could see what's coming at you, you'd see it from far away, you'd know how to return it. Yeah, you'd know how to play it, you'd see where it landed, you'd understand what's going on more fully. And in the same way that when our mind is trying to do life, right? Cope with life, cope with the situations of life, cope with the experience of life, the dynamics of life. If we're not calm and we're not centered and we're not present, it's going to be really difficult to be able to understand anything. Um, you know, again, if you are a teacher in a classroom, if you see a kid and the kid's eyes are wandering around the class and he's whispering to people and looking out the window and scribbling and doing all this stuff, and then there's a kid next to them and she's just staring at you and, you know, really just fully like listening to you, you would know as the teacher, this child is actually taking in the information that I'm giving and this child is really not able to take it in right now. You know, because if your mind is kind of wandering and scattered and here and there and there, 
you can't really comprehend anything. You can't really, you know, understand it, take it in, cognize it. So the mind has to kind of stop and rest on something to be able to really understand it. If the mind is just skimming the surface, or it's a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, it can never really fully understand what the object is that it's looking at. It's like when you're reading 13 books at once, you know? You're getting little pieces of different stuff, but you don't really fully know any one of those books. <coughs> so what I've noticed for myself is that this practice of samatha, which is what I mainly teach during the, the formal meditation practice, but actually I think that when I give talks, my talks are almost more like Vipassana, right? It's almost that I give talks about life, about different ways of handling the mind and dealing with things. So I, I try to give understandings as I speak that then also aid in the mind finding its, its peace when we actually close our eyes to meditate in the samatha. Um, so one of the ways that when we start calming our minds is that we really start seeing the mechanics of the mind. It's an amazing day when you realize that you are not your thoughts. When you can sit there and a thought comes and it says, oh, this is really boring. And you kind of look at that and you hear that thought in your head and, and then you say, I don't necessarily believe that this is boring. I actually think it's really cool to be sitting here meditating. And it's like, huh, you know? Whereas the average person, they would sit here, this thought, they would be sitting in meditation, this thought comes up, this is really boring, and they would believe that. They'd say, oh, that's really what I think, that's me, this is boring, they'd build up a story around it. They'd say, oh, this is boring, meditation is boring, maybe I'm doing it wrong, maybe this, maybe I shouldn't come back next class, right? And then they'd start acting out of that, so they'd be creating karma. Right? Because there would be this, an impulse, and then they'd create an action out of that impulse, which creates a volition, a, a momentum, a force into their life by not coming to the class or starting to doubt themselves profusely about how I can't meditate and I don't maybe this isn't for me. Whereas if that thought came up, this is boring, and you just looked at that and you just said, that's not what I think. You know, suddenly you've, you've reclaimed your own mind. Because our thoughts are not ours, and we don't control them. I mean, my friend told me about these things called invasive thoughts. And when he told me, you know, his definition of invasive thoughts, I was like, I think I have one of those every five minutes, probably. Um, you know, it's normal. Every time I climb up a mountain, I think, what would happen if I jumped off? You know, not thinking I'm going to do it, but just what would happen? Like, wow, all the way up here, what would happen? You know, I had times I remember in the monastery where I'd be sitting in the monastery, and I remember one where I heard about a foiled terrorist attempt. I forget exactly what they were trying to do, um, but I remember hearing this news that there was like a foiled terrorist attempt, and I was sitting in the monastery and I was meditating, and I was like, yeah, you know. If I was really trying to kill a bunch of people, here's how I would do it. And I kind of like went into this whole thought about, you know, and then at one point I just stopped and I was like, am I really to, to spend the last 10 minutes kind of thinking about how I could kill the most people like the quickest, you know? And it was kind of one of these interesting things where my first reaction to that was almost to feel like horrified at myself or like ashamed. Or, but then it was kind of like, that's not really me though. You know, 
Seth wouldn't actually do that. But the thoughts that pop up are so, I think Jack Kornfield often said, he's like, they're so shameless. The thoughts that come into our head, they're shameless. They'll just say anything they want. They'll say stuff directly against your moral values. They'll whisper things in your ear that are super destructive for you, that are not loving, that are not kind, that are offensive. He said, if the person sitting next to you was whispering in your ear the same things you were thinking, you would A, think the person is totally insane, and you would B, just get super offended. How dare you speak to me that way? You know? But this is what we're doing in our own minds all the time. And again, it comes back to, right, if I said to you right now, don't think anything. And see how long you could sit here and not have a thought. Okay, so we'll sit here. Raise your hand as soon as you have a thought. Try, try to have no thoughts. And raise your hand as soon as you have one. Keep your hand up. So, I think I'm just tired is a thought. <laughs> right? So, we say that our thoughts are us, but actually, we can't control them. You can't stop thinking. If you could really control your thoughts, then you should be able to stop thinking. Right? If you could control your thoughts, then you should only be able to have loving, peaceful, happy thoughts. You should be able to fill your mind with the beautiful perfume of gratitude and love and these really nice, uplifted qualities, right? And yet we walk out of this room and we just start, you know, talking shit about everything and everybody around us in our minds. Because thoughts just, they just do their thing. They have the life of their own. So this is one of those things that I've learned from samathas by just sitting here and letting a thought come up and then realizing I don't have to believe that thought. I don't have to react to that thought. <clears throat> I don't have to identify with it. I don't have to be responsible for that thought. That thought's not me. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't control me. Yeah, suddenly it was this huge insight into what I am and what I am not, so to say. Well, the thing is, no thoughts are you. But you can choose which thoughts are beneficial to use and which ones are not. Yeah? So, the, the deeper teachings of Buddhism start to get into non-self, where we have this body that we inhabit for the time that we're here. Some would say that we're kind of <coughs> renting it. Yeah. That eventually we have to return this body back to its owner, which I guess is the earth. So this body, it's this thing that we use, but it's the same thing. We have this kind of limited control, so we think, and we can feel everything that it, you know, so we say, oh, this is my body, I control it. But again, if you could control your body, then why do you still age? Why do you need to eat or breathe? 
why can't you change the hair color? <clears throat> I mean, some people can, but you know. <clears throat> so, you know, we're given this thing that we use, but when you really get into it, this body is just something we'll have for a little while. And I remember at the monastery, same kind of thing. Um, there's something that I was at some point really, felt really like insecure about it. I didn't know if, I forget if I was, at one point I just felt like I walked with too much of a stoop or I thought like I had too much of like a pot belly at a point or something. Like there was something, I remember feeling like weird about it. I don't exactly remember what it was. <clears throat> but I remember sitting in meditation and suddenly really deeply understanding that this body's not me. It's just, it's my body, right? It's the body that I'm possessing right now. But then it kind of was like if anybody walked up to me and they were like, oh, you know, you're, you're fat or you're ugly or you're smelly, I'd be like, yeah, this body is really smelly and fat. Yeah, this body is pretty ugly. Yeah, I don't know. This is just the one they gave me. You know, that suddenly people could make fun of my body all they wanted to and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, this body is kind of, you know, because it, it wasn't me. There's nothing to take personally. Yeah, and then it's the same thing with thoughts. We see a lot of people, right? They fight their ideas against each other. I did this in my, um, I went to the school and I held up my bowl, you know, my singing bowl here. And I said, in Tibetan, it's called a chup jok. I'm like, so what is it? And everyone's like, chup jok. I'm like, so what is this called? They're like, chup jok. And I go, okay, I just lied to you. That's not the name of this bowl. I was like, I have no idea what it's called in Tibetan. But what I just did was I planted an idea in your mind. And if you walked out of this class and you met a Tibetan monk and he picked it up and he goes, oh, this is called a ling, you go, no, no, that's a chup jok. And you probably fight against him because you identify with that understanding that you have as you. And you create this whole thing even though you have no idea what you're actually fighting against. You're just fighting an idea that I gave you that now you're identifying with. And when we start to break up our experience deeper and deeper and deeper through having this still kind of present mind, many of the things that we call me, mine, myself, we start to see that's not the case. And especially in the deepest levels of med meditation, when you're sitting here first, kind of the room disappears, then the experience of the body disappears, which is a weird thing to not experience your body anymore. Then the experience of your thinking disappears, which is really strange. But then also, any movement of the mind starts to disappear, and then the mind starts to kind of take over itself. It starts to move without you moving it. It starts to drop into these really deep places, and suddenly your willpower, your ego starts to disappear. The sense of having a separate self, a sense of I, starts to disappear, and there's just this kind of space and there's an awareness. But it's not, that awareness isn't me. It's not like, oh, that's who I am. I'm, it's like, it doesn't, there's not an experience of a me in there. It just feels like a quality of awareness. This elemental awareness and spaciousness. So really, really, really deep in the meditation, suddenly your whole experiential reality, your whole subjective reality starts to just break apart. 
and it's kind of this huge eye-opening experience. And it's like, oh, okay, it's, that's what's really going on here. And yeah, I remember coming out of that, and it was just, it was a shock, and it was also just so profound. And I remember it was just one of the times that I had this experience. I remember sitting in Australia, and you know, I was meditating late into the night, and yeah, just opening my eyes and sitting there. And it wasn't even my eyes, right? It was almost that feeling. It's like there's this body, but it's not my body. There's a thought, but it's not my thought. Just this really strange place of being aware of everything that's happening and moving, but none of it was mine. And the thought came up that if somebody walked up to me with a gun and said, I'm going to shoot you, it would have been like, you can never shoot me. You may shoot this body, but you can never shoot me. Go ahead. This amazing fearlessness that came along with that realization that, oh, none of this is me. There's nothing anybody could ever do. And it was this total freedom, this liberation, and this is also the direction that the Buddha was trying to point all of us. And it's not a religious idea, it's not a faith-based idea, it's very practical that the more, even when you look at, you know, down to, you know, particle physics, you can really see that the body is just made up of a bunch of stuff spinning around, bouncing. If you want to go to quantum physics, it gets even worse. There's not even necessarily a particle there. It's just probabilities of stuff. So on the scientific material level, it's actually proven that this body doesn't even exist. Not to mention all the cells in it are constantly renewing and changing themselves. So every, what is it, seven years, there's like a by the end of every seven-year cycle, there's a complete new set of cells in the entire body. So what is this thing called me if it's not even the same thing that it was a second ago or seven years ago? Yeah, the mind is the same thing, the collection of ideas that come and go and shift and sort and pair against each other and fight against the world. It's also just a conglomeration. It's an assemblage. And the more that we get into that, the more it becomes present, you know, so what is, what is the thing that's me? If I chopped off the arm and I put the arm down, it's like, I would say, where are you? And you'd say, well, I'm here. That's my arm, it's not me. Okay, you know, this is me. Oh, so what if I chopped off the head and the head was here and the body was there? Where are you? Which one are you? Are you the head? Are you the, where's the you? How do I find you? And when you start to kind of break it down in different ways, And this would be called maybe the Vipassana in terms of there's, there's almost like an intellectual Vipassana, I guess we could say, right? There's kind of sharpening your understanding and your ideas. And then there's an experiential version of this where there's actually, you know, Vipassana. If you ever go to a Goenka 10-day Vipassana retreat where they sit and you do body scans and you feel the sensations moving through your body and you feel pain but then you just go into it and it just actually becomes these like rippling sensations plus heat, plus tightness, plus tension, plus a resistance to that. And then it's like, oh, this thing that I called pain, it's really just resistance to a bunch of different moving sensations in this part of my body. You know? And even if you really get into it, our feelings, our sensations, our thoughts, they exist, this is maybe going a little bit deep down the rabbit hole, but anyway. They exist in different dimensions. 
which is something that I kind of realized in my meditations in the monastery, that if you take your senses right now as you're looking at me, everything that you see is just sight. So as you're looking right now, don't say like Seth or the room or the windows. Just take in the whole image as sight. Right? That's all just sight. And then as I'm speaking, what you're, the noises you're hearing, this is just sound. And then there's a body feeling. There's sensations in the body. Sensations. Yeah? And it has the experience of I'm here, you're out there, the noises are out there coming into me, that I'm inside of this thing. But when you really break it down, is your, and kind of focus on it, does your hearing and your sight exist in the same place? Does the feeling of your body sitting here and what you're seeing exist in the same place? Or are they just fields of awareness that kind of overlap in a way that allows us to feel like there's this thing called this experiential moment? Because don't children have to learn hand-eye coordination? Right? So think about it. For a child, what it sees and the body, they're not, it's not together yet. They're two independently existing fields of awareness that through practice, they start to be able to line them up that when something is seen, that field of awareness can reach out and grab that thing, hit that ball. So we layer a lot, we layer our senses on top of each other and call that reality. But if you break those down, if you just meditate on sight or just on sound, or you close your eyes and you just feel your body sitting here, just feeling body, right, or thoughts, you'll suddenly realize that these things all exist separately, but we kind of layer them on top of each other and create this one thing called experience. So again, this is going like very, very deep into it. So, what meditation is, you know, I've heard different ways of explaining it. Some are saying, you know, you're building a flashlight that you can finally have a look around at what's going on. I've heard it's like you're sharpening an axe that you can then go and chop down the tree with. That creating that present, sharp, focused mind really starts to illuminate your experiential reality. It starts to illuminate everything that's being experienced in a very grounded, aware, present way. And when you take any amount of time and you really look at something, you start to know that thing. We had something in the monastery that we taught our students called the finger meditation. And you take your finger and you just stare at your finger for one minute. And it becomes really fascinating because even after a few seconds, you start to really notice all the wrinkles, 
and the kind of patterning and the nail and the fingerprint and the colors. You could kind of see like the muscles and the bones in it. And it becomes this whole landscape. And then suddenly it's like, oh my God, I've never looked at my finger for a minute before. And it's been right in front of my face my entire life, let alone my other fingers or my hand or my body or gosh, anything. That you really start to understand how by just putting your attention in one place and keeping it there, you really start to see something and understand it. And simultaneously, you also start to realize how seldom it is that we're actually doing that. We're always just jumping, 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 jumping. So we're never understanding anything, which is very surface, surface level. I would also say that there's a little bit more to it. In Buddhism, they say sila samadhi panya. Sila, it's the behavioral rules that monks take, but it also really means living a life that's more virtuous, living a life that you feel more proud of yourself, that you're in your integrity, that you feel good about what you're doing, that you are not doing things that make you feel ashamed, you're not living in a way that makes you feel guilty. You're not creating conflict. You're not consciously hurting other beings or yourself. That when you start living a, a life very practically that's more peaceful, that's more harmonious, that's more loving and gentle and kind. Yeah, this is the sila. And they say that then trans, trans um, like, like it slowly kind of transfers into samadhi, which is the still mind. Because what I always say is that when your mind is happy, it becomes present. When your mind feels good, it wants to stay. So what the life of a monk is often about, it's really trying to live a very wholesome, good life as much as they can a virtuous life as much as they can, and refining that virtue more and more and more, being more generous, being more patient, being more kind, being more open, really focusing on how do I heighten my virtues? Because then the mind gets more and more charged with that positive energy. It gets really happy to be here. It gets really present. Then when you sit to meditation, you have no regrets. You have no doubts. You don't have restlessness. You're completely there. And it automatically puts you pretty much in the zone. And then, then, you're in, then you can get to samadhi, which is the deep meditation, the absorption, when the mind totally goes in on itself. Or should I say everything else falls away and all that's left is kind of more of this, the awareness. And then it's sila samadhi panya. So panya means wisdom. So just the same way that living virtuously leads to the mind starting to become calm all by itself, the calm of the mind starts to bear the fruit of wisdom. That the more that the mind becomes clear and aware, you know, if you're ever on a meditation retreat, I just led one in Andover for the teachers. So I did a, a group of 16 middle school teachers last weekend. I led them on a weekend meditation retreat. And we did a silent period a few silent periods. And I remember one really beautiful silent period. 
it was for the hour before dinner and some of us went out on a canoe and we were on the lake and it was this amazing, very magical kind of moment. And the sun was kind of setting, it's this beautiful sideways light. And, and it was just so magnificent just to be fully present and silent and peaceful. And then we went back inside and then you were allowed to speak at dinner on this night. And for myself, it became so apparent that I didn't want to speak. That why would I speak? Why do I want to just start throwing words and spinning my gears again and trying to be funny or entertaining or interesting or engaging or defending points or showing what I know and what other people don't know? And what, why? Why do I want to engage in words? when it feels so good just to be here and just to be present with everybody, right? So through the samadhi, through that silence of the mind, I started to understand, oh, speaking, that's really, that's really a way that I create a lot of busyness in my mind. Through talking, through interactions, that's really a way that I spin my gears. That's actually kind of exhausting, even. So just by being quiet, I was slowly able just to see more clearly something that I'm doing that's actually causing me unhappiness that I didn't even realize. Just mindless chatter. And conversely, something that brought me a lot of joy, and that was just being present, just being here, feeling not thinking I have to do something to feel safe and connected. Realizing that only when I just stop doing things can I feel all the people around me. So slowly that starts to open up and again as the mind in the meditations itself starts to get deeper you make more subjective experience about reality, about what's an essential part of reality and what's not. One of my teachers, Achim Brahm, he said, one time a frog was swimming in the pond and he came upon a tadpole. And the frog said, you're really gonna like dry land. And the tadpole goes, what's dry land? And the frog said, well, dry land is that thing outside of the water. And the tadpole goes, what's water? And only when the tadpole grew legs and it kind of started crawling up, it breached the surface and it crawled and it goes, oh, this is dry land. And then it turned around and it said, oh, that's water. Because it had been in water its whole life, it didn't know what water was. Because it never was able to get a relationship point outside of it to actually understand it and to see it. And meditation does the same thing because we're so used to being so involved in our life and our thoughts and our feelings in our willpower and our ego and our sense of self that only when you go into these deepest places of meditation and those things fall away, then it's like, oh, that's what ego is. Oh, that's what ignorance is. Oh, that's what wrong understanding is. That's what identification means. That's what busyness means. That's what suffering means. Because you get a relationship point outside of it 
and then only then can you see it all clearly. If you're finding that your meditations are quote-unquote only relaxing you but doing no more, I would first of all say relaxation is still awesome and more than a lot of people get. And I would also say that if anybody wants to deepen their practice of meditation, to simply meditate more, to extend slowly your sessions that you're sitting by yourself, extend them a little bit, do them more often, more days. But more than that, remembering that the mind is always present in your life. So if you're a worry wart and you're a control freak and you're an anal planner and you have a million unresolved life issues and you have a dysfunctional family and a failing job and sicknesses and etc 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 you're gonna sit down to meditate and you could sit for 10 minutes and then you're, you'll be a mess for those 10 minutes or you could sit for an hour and then you'll be a mess for that hour because you have so many things in your life that you haven't been resolving your sila is not built up that you haven't created a harmony with your actual physical world yet that when you sit to meditate all that stuff's just gonna come in and wreak havoc on you so if you cannot meditate more, if you can't find the time to meditate, then I would say to you, then don't. But then in your daily life, start building up the qualities of meditation, which are openness, patience, understanding, safety, peacefulness, gentleness, connection to start building more positive virtue in your life so that when you do meditate, you'll already be in the zone and you'll jump in there really quick. And you'll even see if you're ever having trouble meditating, think of somebody in your life that like in a wholesome way you really love like a really good friend, or like a really good partner, like somebody that when you think about them, your heart just feels happy. It's like biting into a fresh apple. It's like that feeling, like it just feels like good, you know? And you can just hold an image of that person in your mind, and you'll see that your mind will just start to collect around that image, and you'll start to feel love and happiness and thankfulness. If you've done a good deed in your life, if you've really helped somebody out, if you've you know, done charity work or, or given more than you were able to give in a moment, but because somebody really needed it, you did it happily. You can pull that stuff up in your mind also, and your mind will start feeling really thankful and happy and joyful and resonant and present. Yeah, so the stuff that we do in our life really can become the conditions and ultimately needs to become the conditions for our meditation practice. The two are not separate. It's the same mind. Just sometimes that mind is going out, sometimes that mind is going in. But it's the same mind, it's the same dynamic. If you're judging everybody around you, you're probably judging yourself. It's the same gun, and it's either pointing inside or outside. You're either pointing that gun at all the people around you, or you're pointing that gun at yourself. Yeah? So it's the same mechanisms. So if you could start disarming those mechanisms 
in your interactions that when you go into your own space, you'll also be more harmless towards yourself. You'll be more loving and gentle. And then the mind will really find peace that way. Okay?